0: I'm sitting here
1: with two different people in two different cities. One is Mark Stepp, my co-host and the producer of uh, Full Contact Canada. Mark Stepp, how are you doing, Mark?
0: I'm good. You know, it's game day, so uh, you guys will just sound like crows to me.
1: Okay, well, that's cool. <laughs> uh, before we, you, you get away, uh, is it still raining in California?
0: Yesterday was gorgeous. Uh, actually, was able to go out in uh, t-shirts and shorts first time this year. Had false hopes though, because I just the weather just escalated back to another uh, pineapple express atmospheric river is going to start today and last all the way till Thursday. They're expecting five feet of snow. Back to square one, as they say.
1: By that time, you'll be in Nashville.
0: Yes, sir. Directing in a cave, which we don't have to go into, but it's one of those things you do on occasion. Yeah, and at least it won't it won't snow in the cave. So that's (laughs) true about that.
1: And we're also conversing with Derek Zanias. Now, and then your proper title of uh, Lab Canada is it CEO or COO?
2: E-E-O. E-E-O. CEO. CEO. The, the, the proper title, uh, my my better half is COO.
1: Derek is a, an aficionado of cannabis and its healing products because of his, his own personal situation. And then uh, how many years ago did you take over the day-to-day on LabCamp?
2: That would have been three years ago, 2020. And a funny, well, coincidental that we're having this uh, session on the 19th. Seven years ago today, I was uh, in a medically induced coma. So the accident just, anniversary just passed.
1: And that's what kind of got you into cannabis, which quite frankly has gotten a lot of people into cannabis has been, the the, like I said, the healing properties. The one thing I am curious about it, once you got your interest picked in cannabis, by golly, there's a lot of things you can do in cannabis. You can be a cannabis lawyer, a cannabis advocate, a cannabis accountant. What was the impetus to get into the business part of cannabis?
2: Um, I actually saw an opportunity and an opportunity to bring a different level of therapeutic sophistication to cannabis. Um, I was very, very interested in all of the medical properties, the potential of this plant, and I'm sure that there are many people that would feel similarly, thought we'd move a little bit quicker than we have. But what
1: reason I'm saying that is a lot of people who believe it and advocate it, but what made you, or did you want to run a company, or was there a void that you filled?
2: Uh, I did. uh, When I was younger, about three years old, for some reason, and I realized a lot of the pains that come from that now, uh, I, my life goal, my professional goal was to be CFO of the company. Um, and I actually was fortunate enough to achieve that for a cannabis company at 27 years old. That was really, my parents are in the professional corporate sphere. They have been in and out of investment banking and corporate law for a very long time. So it's what I knew. It's what I, uh, everyone wants to grow up to be at least. If you have great parents to be like your great parents. Yeah, but you
1: could have been, like I said, gone into uh, finance, commodities, but run a cannabis company. I guess what I'm asking is that when you
2: got into it, did you wear what you were getting into? To a certain degree, um, there was obviously LabCan has done quite a bit similar to TN Homegrown. Um, we were vertically integrated for a very long time and having those operational differences. I don't like just sitting behind a desk all day. Um, I like having hands touching the manufacturing process, touching plants, and I just see all of the potential for growth quite literally and uh, economically, the potential that exists. Um, Now, obviously regulatory and uh, the advocacy side of things, that's taken a pretty big sphere and pretty big scope for myself as well as is necessary to continue to evolve and progress. Well,
1: the reason I'm saying that is that by the time you got into it, we're talking about 2020, right? About that period
2: uh, time? 2018 is when I got into it. When did you start running the company? That was 2020.
1: Okay. So had you, those two previous years,
2: what was your participation in, in the cannabis industry? Uh, I was an investor and I helped really from the ground up Form the next level of Lab LabCanna, uh, opening our retail store, uh, building structure, building operational structure, doing the uh, accounting and bookkeeping. It was a uh, nose to the grindstone, hit the ground running, uh, entrepreneurial experience, no doubt. The reason I'm
1: saying that is by 2020, it was evident that the hemp-driven cannabinoid industry was in severe distress. And were you aware of that or was it too busy seeing the trees for the forest?
2: Uh no, I was absolutely aware of that and you know, I But uh, you still did it. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I like pain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that because that is the thing about it is that the industry there are certain aspects of of industries that are no longer relevant. Is the smaller mom-and-pop cannabis company
2: still relevant? I would say absolutely. I think that there is always going to be a niche for uh, craft, small batch, anything. Uh, Look at the progression of the beer industry. You know, everything kind of follows that same parabolic trajectory. Um, If you look at Anheuser-Busch got massive, and then we now look, there are probably two, three dozen small batch craft beer breweries In national alone, Um, I see cannabis going through a uh, rapid version of that. And we see that happening, as I'm sure you could affirm, right now.
1: Well, the reason I mentioned that, I'm glad you brought up craft beers. For the last step, you know about craft beer?
0: Yeah, but uh, what Derek just touched on is how quickly the cannabis industry is trying to attain that level.
1: But what I'm saying, though, is you know for a fact, because you were thinking about open a, a craft brewery how yep. competitive and maybe that that's one of those things that you know every i mean because it is how many craft breweries can nashville uh absorb and support how many can how many cannabis companies and the thing about both reason craft beer and cannabis is because there's a certain aspect of it it's enamoring I mean, let's face it, you and I both know the first time I tasted one of your your first batches of beer, it was like, damn, dude, this is good. We should sell this.
2: Yeah, I got lucky.
1: But, so, but <laughs> Derek, isn't there the same
2: aspects of cannabis? I would say yes and no. I mean, if you look at the West Coast, for example, um, some of the big MSOs have already divested their large operations, jumping to the next perceived opportunity. Um, there is, uh, you've said this before in previous uh, editions of the podcast, but the general understanding of simple base economics uh, just was not really thought through. There is tremendous supply, as well as relatively uh, a high demand for cannabis products and the slew of new cannabis forms of product that are now on the market. The cannabis tourism that came with all of the initial states that have legalized. That's obviously dwindling now that it's become available in, at least in the, the medical space, over 35 different states at this point. We're going to see that to continuing. Uh, we see the oversaturation, especially in the hemp industry of hemp products, hemp-derived cannabinoids. Everything has the same similar trajectory. Look at the dot-com bubble. No different. It's business.
1: All these, these companies are dying. The whole thing, and let's go back to craft brewery. How many craft brewers have their own store? Most of the craft brewery is sold in supermarkets and in liquor stores and things like that. Is that 2018 business model still relevant in 2023?
2: It depends on that business model. Uh, I, I would challenge and say that there are quite a few craft breweries that also have a tap risk. Um, I see something similar happening with with cannabis, and that's already taken taken effect.
1: In essence, you're saying that the cannabis industry is going to have to have this Darwinian period where the market will, market will pick out the good ones <laughs> and the rest <laughs> of them will die?
2: Uh, that, that's, that is capitalism, my friend. <laughs> yeah, spot on. It's exactly but what it is. The
0: uncertainty
1: of the re- uh, regulatory environment. Let's say well, we'll stay on craft beer because it tastes good they don't continually have to change how they make it, what the level, you know, alcohol, how they can market it,
2: you know,
1: all that like cannabis does. There
2: is no doubt, no doubt about that. Um, I, I 100% hear your point there. And I think that, you know, we've all been existing in this uh, legal gray scape. Uh, and it's tough to play the game if you don't know the rules. Now, FDA, we know the FDA just kicked back uh, CBD-specific regulations to Congress. Um, We're sitting on now going on five full years since the uh, 2018 Farm Bill was put in. We have another one coming up, the 2023 Farm Bill. That could change the entire scope again. I think that it just comes down to uh, politics, as you know. And there's been a lot of distraction in the political sphere. Uh, And I say distraction, I mean that in regards to
0: the hemp and cannabis
2: space, simply because of the pandemic. And now we're going into this economic questionable period. So there is a lot of pressure on politicians to make quick, not necessarily correct, but quick decisions that have a greater impact on the United States and the global economy and global commerce. And that kind of has shied away from uh, the cannabis side of politics. Now I say that, and if you take a global macroscope look, you will you see the same thing happening in uh, the EU. Look at Luxembourg, for example, the first EU member state to legalize cannabis, and they have had zero traction. Uh, Germany, they've actually made took the, the correct steps forward to create a great program that is now unrolling. Look at the Canadian market. I mean, there's just been- well, Oh, okay, can so you bring
1: up the Canadian change, you know, market? Whoa,
2: whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I was using that as a comparison, not necessarily saying they, they are doing any form of positive, just using that as an example of cannabis programs that have rolled out from some of the bigger governmental players. And now it's been a slow roll because of all the other things that are going on in the world.
1: The reason I'm going to go back to Canada is because I see the EU is just a weird place. It is. it's that's going to be the mm-hmm. weirdest cannabis rollout in the world. But Canada, to me, is the poster child of how the we're gonna look at cannabis. What is the oldest uh, the biggest country to have had recreational cannabis the longest? And it's Canada. Mm-hmm. A- and it's a train wreck. What's to stop what happened in Canada? not
2: happening here. I think it's, we see the examples already. We see a a lot of the MSOs jumping from opportunity to opportunity, which is exactly why I brought up the craft beer example. I think that that is going to be closer to the rollout of a larger cannabis industry in the US. The
1: infatuation with scaling up in large companies, which is what happened in Canada. Canada, they could have, opened up their whole market to the people who were doing med up there. But no, they wanted to go through Health Canada. And because of that, they favored big companies who came in, overestimated what the market was and simplicity, and it, and it just has, has failed. Meanwhile, black market in Canada is bigger, bigger than it's ever been. Well, mean, and why
2: be, do you think that's the case?
1: Twofold. One- that really, really rich people who start companies think they can do anything. The second thing was they totally overestimated the market, which is one of the things I see down here in the United States. We got these people who do these, and I'm sorry, dumbass things where they go, by the year 2030, the market should be based on basically air. And we don't have to use land canner. We'll just use Tennessee Homegrown. Is it real, realistic to see that our profit model and the and way that we've been able to do business will be viable?
2: I think that's a question that you could answer. Um, I, I see I'm... that happening in metro, closer to metropolitan areas, uh, just the same way that I mentioned, I, and I keep bringing it back to craft beer. There are available opportunities similar to hospitality and hospitality groups. I see a, a rollout of a similar platform and program where those smaller operators are able to supply those larger msos and not necessarily be able to maintain their brand i will be very transparent about that however it doesn't mean that those businesses and those operators need to fold completely again this is all speculative you just said it yourself we've seen how many supposed Research reports and analytical reports have come out saying that CBD, let's use just CBD for an example, CBD by 2025 will be a $35 billion industry. Well, what are we at today? Six billion. Five? And yep. five, five, six, yeah.
0: I think the other interesting thing here too, because since we are staying on craft beer, the, the cannabis industry is still useful as far as being a legitimate business model across, across the board. The beer industry, not so much, but I also think even for craft brewers, inventory control is so much easier to manage than cannabis because cannabis is purely agricultural first, where beer manufacturing is ingredients that are easily attainable in other areas and supply and demand is either easier to control than in the hemp or cannabis industry. It, and that's what's going on right now. Everybody overproduced in anticipation of this $30 billion market. So now it doesn't have shelf life.
1: I think it's a, a fantastic observation step because maybe what I'm saying is, is that the cannabis industry isn't mature enough to actually have a structure that, they, that is conducive to doing this business. Wild, wild
2: west or new frontier. Yeah, true. <laughs> my,
1: my favorite quote is from Chris, Kristen Nichols at Marijuana Business Daily. He said, uh, marijuana is a wild, wild west. Hemp is uh, Mad Max. <laughs> and it, and it kind of is. I mean, it's still this, like our companies, right? For people don't know, Canada and Tennessee Homegrown in the first years were rivals, not so much because of tennessee homegrown because we were this little company but there were people that were pressures on the companies that were merging to like take no prisoners so it was very very competitive that has changed over the years especially because of dear old Derek. Derek, for folks that don't know when Derek came into canada it was a very big fresh breath of air and it was a whole different attitude but in the first part of of hemp until, and still in a bunch of people, it is Mad Max, take no prisoners, pride customers from their dead cold hand. And that's having to change. And that's kinda, I guess what we're all trying to do. When you guys decided to put out an olive branch to us and stuff and give us a big hug, what was the thought process?
2: Multiple. Uh, Personally, I think that in order to find success for everyone in this industry, There needs to be a uniformity and a uniform message to make the legislative change that we need to do unbarred, less red tape business. Growth of an industry and collaboration is an absolute must. I just feel that way on a personal level as well as on a professional level. If we can take a completely separate example, look at the automotive space. Even the biggest grossing, producing automotive industry professionals they're selling information and selling engines and selling uh, uh, technologies between businesses. That, it should be no different for any other industry. I think that you know this plant is the people's plant. So it brings a connectivity within your endocannabinoid system. So why should that be any different from how we operate as business owners in the cannabis space? Um, I think that there's much greater strength from working in collaboration than there is uh, uh, trying to protect and create those bubbles and spheres uh, out of fear. LabCanna's, our core values are educate first, be a resource, grow together, and the final one is, excuse my language, give a shit. You just have to care. Well,
1: the reason I'm saying that is about that, and and I commend that. Why does cannabis
2: draw so many scoundrels I would say that's because of the green waves. They, they saw a, a monetary capitalist opportunity and a lot of big money, big pockets jumped into this industry. What I prefer to call it is the green tsunami because it keeps coming and it keeps going and going and going.
0: I think any industry has scoundrels. I believe that because we're in it, it's more evident of what's going on. I mean, the other industry I work in equal amount of scoundrels. So I I don't think it's isolated, but it is there. So it's definitely worth the discussion. But I, I, I wouldn't think that it's weed. So we're all criminals. I don't think that's it at all. I'm
1: glad you brought that up because this is the part about being an amateur industry. And people still have to remember movie business is over 100 years old now. Cannabis, legal cannabis is less than 10 years it's not defined industry. And it's sort of if you're on the outside looking in, it's almost mystical. And I think that's sort of the show business. This this whole thing that everybody thinks they can direct a movie and everybody thinks they can grow weed. Correct. Them, <laughs> it doesn't matter if they've <laughs> ever planted a seed or been on the set, a movie set before. They all think they can go in there and I think the quote is, how hard could it be? It's just weed. Yeah like with yourself, uh, Derek, you've been doing this since 2018. Does it still not amaze you how many cannabis professionals are clueless?
2: It is a little uh, perplexing. I think that there's a a level of blissful, ignorant optimism, um, something that, you know, keeps the attention on the potential growth of this industry, kind of goes without saying, uh, we're still waiting on the the legislative change. It's the legal landscape and different regulations on a state-by-state basis that really have stifled the growth and progression of this industry. There's still a ton of innovation happening. Yes, it does surprise me. At the same time, I understand why it's still there.
0: And Derek, does the, you know, for lack of a better term, the hurry up and wait to see what's happening, you know, legislatively, does that make you and your business pull back and be very cautious as you move forward? Or do you still fill your full beans all the way in?
2: I would absolutely say we've taken a tasteful, tactful approach to not have uh, bulk inventory, to uh, not go full force and take a, uh, many entrepreneurial risks that you generally would take. You know, it don't really want to get so deep into the following politics around this, but I am uh, a half black male. I am biracial. So taking risks as a black male in this state in regards to cannabis, there's a lot of reservations that, that kind of remove me from that. I mean, look what just happened in Memphis to the family that lost their children to DCS. There was a family out in West Tennessee. That uh, was on their way to a funeral. Um, they had tinted windows and were pulled over for those tinted windows and not passing in the left lane. Well, during the search and pullover, uh, the family, uh, black family of five, they were uh, searched and there was less than a gram of marijuana found, cannabis found, and that family was locked up and the children were. Uh, taken by DCS, which is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling that those things still happen with the vast amount of cannabis that exists in this nation, the numerous states that have legal programs. For all intents and purposes, they could have gone to a legal state because they are right near the border, gotten that product. Tennessee actually has a medical law that allows for that, as long as you have a doctor's note. But at the same time, it's that conflicting regulation and the conflicting targeting of certain individuals, in this case, a, a Black family, that makes me, as a half-Black male, hesitant to take some of those legal gray area risks that exist for the cannabis industry in Tennessee.
1: You guys, Lab canna has been uh, squeaky clean. which was a good thing, right? <laughs> As you and I both know, the strange, strange phenomena of THCA flower in the state of Tennessee, which is weird because, and and for those folks who don't know it, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of pounds of flat-out weed that's being grown in California, Oregon, Washington, and Oklahoma that come across the state line of Tennessee and all of a sudden become hemp, and it's THCA flower and it's being sold openly in huge amounts, and it's just flat out weed. And that's the dichotomy that's here. And then they have this law that where basically, you and I both know, Derek, they could go and swoop down on these people anytime they want, but choose not to.
2: I think uh, the reason that they're not is because there's still such a disconnect and misunderstanding of hemp versus marijuana. We both know it's just cannabis. Uh, we, we all know that the arbitrary ruling between the two has no bearing. And it's just gotten too too big to control at this point. Uh, you know, I, I hate to use this term, but essentially the, the industry is, quote, too big to fail. There's too much money in it. Like we said at the beginning of this, there is a lot of money from very influential people connected to politics that have vested interests in this industry. So they're trying to, we separate the wheat from the chaff, both the positive players in the industry, as well as those that have the, the tenacity and the financial backing to continue. So the gray, really uh, illicit sphere of the market that has continued to exist, it's all over the state. It's all over the damn country.
1: Any, any state that has loose little hemp-derived cannabinoids, they're all doing it. And this is the thing that just is like, okay, are, are we dancing on the head of a pin here? Or is this, uh, which seriously, it's like back in when there was prohibition, they actually had medical alcohol. People don't realize it, but you had medical alcohol. And there were certain states where it was real easy to get a little thing. And it was their way of keeping an industry alive while they were trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Is it your observation? that there are so many hint derived companies making so much money and giving to so many people that they're kind of stuck with it?
2: They being?
1: Uh, the government, uh, the man.
2: Yes, yes, undoubtedly. And it's funny that you make the comparison to prohibition. Um, I'm seeing mm-hmm. quite a few striking similarities to where the U.S. economy is now to the time that prohibition was lifted. I don't really want to get very deep into that. However, I see the availability to create a new industry, create jobs. Uh, A lot of people are probably going to want to punch me in the face for this one, but to tax and bring greater proceeds to pull a bailout of now financial institutions, really to bring that back that's what happened with prohibition that is kind of where we are currently and i see a, a, a strong potential for legalism federal policy change i won't say legalization i will say policy within the next three years okay okay now
1: this is all right because steps in california and he he could tell you like how many uh Farms and rec shops are for sale in California right now?
0: I would say it's probably getting close to 50%. And also, you know, some of those are are large operations. I mean, MedMen is, uh, they have some serious debt. So they're looking for a buyer. I don't think they'll ever find it. But also, besides them being for sale, and I think, Derek, this gets back to what you were just saying, is there's a huge cartel problem here now because once legalization happened here, the cartels took it as, oh, well, we can just go grow our illegal weed in California and not get in trouble for it. And it's been a slow process to get a crackdown happening on that. They literally were taking over these small farm towns, just kicking everybody out and doing grow-ups. That, to me, Harold is the weed that's getting transferred across state lines. Yes, thank you. That's the stuff I think is coming here. Yeah, because uh, compl- compliance is a big a big thing here. And when it first legalized, people here really jumped on compliance. But it had its downside. And a lot of that gets back to the scoundrels that became involved in it, said, oh, well, we can go, we can head to this. We can go gray and black and nobody will know it because it's technically legal now and that kind of from underneath the table really started making the industry suffer. Also, that is why 100% there is oversupply here, overproduction here is because of that. I
1: think we should have structure and a tax thing, but isn't this edge of a razor blade, however you wanna put it, because the reason I brought up California is, is they're trying to suck all the, as much income through taxation out of the cannabis companies, yet this is putting the strain on the cannabis companies because with the added added tax burden, the margins are so razor thin. And that's because right now both me and you, my friend, are competing against a huge amount of cannabis coming in that, like step said is probably illegal. Here it is, you throw tax on us unless you can shut down that that these because t- what? Uh, I'll ask you. You're you're knowledgeable about this. What do you think the percentage of cannabinoids being sold in Tennessee come from out of state?
2: Uh, that would be a purely speculative number, but uh, very high, very 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 majority, high, especially because of the oversupply in upcoming in those states themselves. So
1: here we have the burden here in Tennessee. If you're a cannabis company. A, you have to compete against people who do not have to play any compliance costs, which are bare, and B, now all of a sudden, we, we're going to have to start facing the prospect of an excise tax on top of it, and then just conducting a business. I don't know about you, but damn, boy, I did not know it was so expensive to run a damn business.
2: <laughs> I'll second that one. Um, I, so I have a question. I have a question for you both. Like I said before, I'm kind of comparing, we are comparing what we're going through right now or have compared it to Prohibition, which ended in 1933. How did it end? We all know that there were moonshiners. How did the black market and alcohol get stifled so far that this booming and massive alcohol industry exists in the U.S. with minimal black market concern? What, what steps were taken? Why can't we apply those same steps or similar, not we, well, why can't the political sphere apply those same steps and actions to stifle the black market and create a uh, sustainable legal market for cannabis? Concerning alcohol,
0: the federal government 100% strong armed it and they took control of it. Then the states have a very structured distribution licensing system. Being a liquor, alcohol distribution person in any state is expensive and difficult. So it's not for the young at heart. So therefore, it immediately started controlling the environment. That's not happened with cannabis. Federal government's kind of like, uh, we'll check it out later. We might raid you, but we'll check it out later. And all the states are running willy nilly on doing whatever it is they feel like they want to vote and do, whether it's legalization, recreation, or none at all. So therefore there's inconsistency across the
2: continent that makes for it being out of control. Same thing happened in Canada. Would, would you say that right now, because what I heard is that the state level of regulation was, came secondary to federal at that point. And cannabis is obviously flipped, but what I heard, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the licensing structure on a state-by-state basis for alcohol, which we know varies differently from state to state, similar to cannabis? Would you say that we're just following? We're following a similar uh, parabolic arc, and except for the fact that federal is following suit from state,
0: I would agree. It's flipped exactly uh, what you started with.
1: I, uh, uh, huh? I actually have studied the first seven, eight years after Prohibition got lifted, and it was a quagmire. One thing, there were still states up until uh, the war started that were still dry. Uh, Also, when some states came on, and I know for a fact that the whole state didn't go wet, there, I think, there still might be to this day in the United States, four or five counties that are still dry.
0: Uh, It's probably more than that. Okay. Yeah.
1: And the other thing, which is the kind of what the similarities that though that are. So, what happened when you nationally legalize something and the states restrict production? That's when moonshining hit. A lot of people think that moonshining was like during the roaring 20s and shit. Uh uh-uh. uh. Those people started NASCARs. That was the 30s, the 40s, and 50s because there was still so many places in the South, you couldn't get alcohol. In places, the only hard liquor you could get was in a mason jar. That was flat out, straight up, especially in the deep South, because where, where the Bible Belt was, they drink you know, alcohol by drinks. Don't, our only place you get alcohol was with the meal. There was a whole host of things that couldn't be done, but people loved alcohol. And that's kind of, to me, what's going on here is that's why, you know, keep going back to prohibition is prohibition has made a lot of people think, you know, the whole analogy about doing recreational was, is that you would gradually force out black market. Well, no, if you only partially legalize, what you have done is King Hell made black market. Let's look at the biggest black markets, Virginia has had legal weed for how many years now? Still don't have a place to legally buy it. New York, which is, what, 27 million people, still only have 34 rec stores. So out of a nation or a state of 20 million people, where do you think that weed's coming from? Whether knowingly or not knowingly, if the more we push into this regulatory environment, unless you do it across the board, it don't matter.
2: I hear what you're saying, but I feel I pretty strongly in our comparison to prohibition. I hear, you know, speakeasies existed, speakeasies in New York. You just said that there are uh, 30, 33 legal places to buy cannabis in New York now. I was just in New York uh, less than a month ago. I went into one of those establishments. Uh, there's no doubt, no question that it's overregulated, similar to many of the other legal states that have a rec program, an adult use program, Um, but I'm I'm struggling to see how it is so vastly different from the alcohol prohibition side, with the only exception being the uh, legislative power started with the states here and is now shifting, will shift to the federal government.
1: Yes, I agree that totally, but you and I also know, though, if there's Not some uniformity interstate, it's still going to be messed up beyond belief.
2: Yes. And that was what I was saying is that I do think because there is so much conflicting regulation on a state by state basis, that the federal government is going to have to very soon jump in and create a blanket legislation to allow for interstate commerce to then combat the illicit transfer of the materials two states because the government's a missing out on this and b creating and sustaining this black market that they're trying to promote as uh non-existent that states are trying to combat from putting forth their regulatory guidelines and then as soon as a new state comes on it's opening up a new uh opportunity to the black market operators again this this is you know i I, (laughs) i laugh as i say this but that's from a lot of people's perspective, part of the American dream. You're, you you find uh, a new avenue, a new um, customer base. You're you're introducing new products. I mean, we're seeing that time and time again in this sphere, in this space. I just think that a, a federal uh, oversight is necessary in order to, and it's not gonna be overnight, we know that. It wasn't just as you had uh, explained about NASCAR and, and Moonshine Runners, um, it's going to take at least a decade, two decades, to smooth that out and have a fully structured, sustainable, legal cannabis industry in the United States.
1: One of the bad things about our wonderful democratic system is, is the fact that once legislation starts being crafted, then it's going to tend to favor those people that can gather the ear of the politicians. And invariably what happens is two things. One, they're going to make enough regulations to where it makes it almost impossibly economically uh, to survive if you're a smaller company. And then the second part is is that because of that, then the consolidations by big companies. I I mean, why will cannabis be any different than what has happened to corn farmers or wheat farmers or people who who now are just really really struggling
2: unfortunately i i struggle to see how it will be
1: all right this is a good question man like with us we're you know wondering if they're going to do med rec then secondly we're wondering if they do do matter rec are we going to even be able to compete are we going to be able to at at tennessee homegrown be able to come up with enough funds without having to borrow or put our company in a precarious
2: business to participate. That is capitalism, my friend.
1: No, but what I'm saying is that's not capitalism because what they have done is that the people who can write the laws put in a framework that disadvantages smaller companies. And that's what I'm saying is, and I and I fear Tennessee is the poster child for that. I mean, they can come in. Mm -hmm.
2: Go ahead. I was going to say, let me rephrase. That is the capitalism that we live in.
1: Okay. So, which then goes back to another thing. With all these political action groups and organizations that are asking me on a semi-regular basis to fire them off a check, what's the use?
2: The use is to make sure that we have uh, uniform messaging and showing that we have a clear understanding of the potential issues the existing issues and the benefits to the economy and to uh, public health and public safety by creating a legal system a legal program i said this before and i will maintain this the unified movement and message is what's necessary and there are perceptions in between companies, in between uh, uh, political action committees, in between trade associations, that everyone is trying to pull in the direction that makes the most sense for their business.
1: Right. And that's why people so like Tilray what, and Canopy want us to go away. Right?
2: Well, how are they, they going to make that happen? Either by- Okay. it's exactly what out. I said.
1: Now, here, Tennessee could be a thing. All right. Right now- Compliancy is ridiculously small. Being able to be compliant, probably you can do for less than $10,000, no matter how much damn testing you're doing. You can probably do it for $10,000. My friend, Donald Saucy at Columbia River Cannabis, his compliancy cost per year are 50 grand. And that'd be a real easy way for the people who come in and could kill a big bunch of us by just saying, okay, you can play, but you got to pay. And what is the, I mean, because this is what's happening in California, Washington state, all these places, these companies are dying, not because, you know, twofold, they're growing too much. But the second thing is, is their compliance costs. They can't compete with black market because of their, their cost. And it's still uh, companies that pay can compete with the black market. Aren't we screwed?
2: Turns into a volume game at that point.
1: Which means uh, Tennessee Homegrown sells T-shirts, and then we go into cannabis tourism. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 I did the volume thing, right? And in 2020, we, we're growing 10, 12 times more cannabis. You can't grow your way out of
2: this. You can only sell and get the visibility. That's, that's the volume that I'm talking about. Sales volume would, and exposure volume.
1: Maybe that's as it should be, It maybe it is that the old hemp farmer, after writing his business plan in 2014 and had to change his business model three or four times, right now maybe it's just I'm tired
0: and jaded, you know. Uh, you were tired and jaded when you
2: wrote the first one, buddy. <laughs> True. I would True. also venture to say that uh, you're not feeling that alone. And
1: one thing I will have to admit after going, both uh, me and Derek went through the same fire drill last year in the state of Tennessee, when out of nowhere, uh, well, not out of nowhere, there's was people bugging the state legislatures to do something. And so, by golly, they thought about doing it. And the first thing they thought about was shutting it all down. And then the second thing they thought about was taxing it. And then the third thing is they decided they weren't really ready to do any of this so they went home. And that might be a real good question for us to cuz we've been doing this for a long time. You're talk you're talkative. We're all talking. But as this rolls out in Tennessee, is the state of Tennessee anywhere near prepared to implement a cannabis program that has excise tax?
2: Uh, I would say that is the purpose of the excise tax. So we're we're pretty much in a chicken or the egg scenario. Regulatory-wise, regulatory oversight, absolutely not. I would say that we are not, not prepared. The legislature is not prepared. Um, but that is the purpose of the taxation structure. And what the tax money is going towards is to create that regulatory oversight. So, like I said, chicken or the egg.
1: Which is great because what I've heard uh, from people more learned than I am, to implement the sort of program that we've heard about, the state of Tennessee would have to cough up $8 million up front to fund the program. And that's, to me, where it's going to be. I know Tennessee would like to get the money, but is Tennessee futuristic enough to realize that it, it
2: takes money to make money? absolutely does, and uh, I could be incorrect on this, but there is a budget surplus in Tennessee. So to say that there is not enough money for the state to contribute to a regulatory body or contribute to uh, creating a new one or picking one of the many that cannabis could fall under on creating a a division, um, I think that that is uh, just inaccurate. There, the money is there now i think they're trying to see who is going to control it everyone all at least the the government regulatory oversight is just confused there's still so much confusion around cannabis uh around the available cannabinoids on the mm-hmm. applications and different products that you can make from it uh differentiating between uh what levels of cannabinoids are, yeah. are appropriate i mean there's just there's still too many questions which is and- why I don't think it's the money side. I think it's just a lack of understanding.
1: Derek, could you do me a favor? And maybe here in a couple of weeks of when this actually comes in and we actually see what we get, could you come back? Absolutely. Uh, Step, you got uh, your final blurb.
0: I was going to suggest that we have Derek back again, too, because I don't believe we covered everything. In our uh, allotted time, but uh, it's all fascinating information, and I also think it's a setup for the future to see what happens next. So,
2: looking forward to the next time.
1: Derek, real quick, how can people get a hold of you?
2: Uh, you can please email me uh, at Derek. That's D E R E K at labcanna. L A B C A N N A dot com. I'm more than happy to have additional discussions. I find all of this unbelievably fascinating, and I I love the challenge.
1: Well, this is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Ham Farmer. This is Full Contact Cannabis, which is sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown. And as always, keep one eye on the weather and the other eye on the market. And thank you for listening, folks.
0: Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com.